All right, let's look at Revelation 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 3 and go up through verse 6. Let's read that together, beginning in verse 3, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word once again. We ask that you'd be here with us and uh, just uh, cause your Holy Spirit to give us insight and understanding and wisdom uh, as we look at this passage this morning. And Lord, we're so excited to uh, see the, the uh, completion and the fruition of all your plans for those that you love, those who love you, and what you have in store for us for all eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you know, if you've been tracking with us week by week, we've come through now uh, the millennium, uh, the final uh, casting of Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and all the ungodly uh, into the lake of fire. We've got a new heaven, a new earth. We talked about the new Jerusalem last week, I believe, coming down out of heaven and how uh, a number of uh, prominent Bible scholars, teachers, theologians, including my mentor, Pastor Chuck Smith, believe that the new Jerusalem, as it comes down out of heaven, is actually not going to be planted upon the earth, will be in orbit around the earth, God's ultimate space station. How cool is that? And that that's where we'll be living. We'll find out, I guess, when we actually get there, but that's what some tend to believe. And so as we continue on now with this, as we're into the final moments of John's revelation from Jesus Christ, he hears a loud voice from heaven. And this is the last of 20 times uh, that the expression, a loud voice, is used in Revelation. There's a reason for that, because as we see in this passage, God will literally make his dwelling place among men, so he's not going to have to send out a loud voice from heaven anymore. The first time it was used in Revelation was chapter 5, verse 2. But this is the last of 20 times that John hears a loud voice from heaven. And this voice says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. The first thing that comes to mind as we read this, at least for me, is John 1.14. And the Word became flesh, the Word being Jesus Christ, big W, the Logos, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or now there is a well-respected translation of the Bible. It's an older one. It's called Young's Literal Translation. And in Young's Literal Translation, he literally translates this, the Word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. So the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This seems to tie in somehow with 
the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes place at the end of September, beginning of October. We know the Jewish calendar doesn't correspond directly to our solar calendar. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar based upon the cycles of the moon, whereas our Greco-Roman calendar is based upon the cycles of the sun. So September, October, Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, the idea of Jesus being called Emmanuel, God with us, he came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this was the first time, if you will, that God in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, came and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. And therefore, a number of Bible scholars believe that Jesus was actually born in the fall around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's a lot of evidence when you look at it to support that theory, including the fact that the shepherds were still out in the fields with their sheep. They would have brought them in for the winter. A lot of reasons why great indicators that Jesus did come at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or was born into this world at that time. It's also a fulfillment of the promise we saw in Revelation 7.15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, or the New American Standard Bible says, spread his tabernacle over them. So this is a significant word, concept, this idea of God dwelling or tabernacling among his people. And then we read on, and here in Revelation 21.3, they shall be his people... God himself will be with them and be their God. And the meaning here is that shall be permanently with them and shall never leave them. Now you might say, well, that's already the case, but it's different. Right now we have Jesus who is God. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But this is speaking after the millennium as we enter into eternity, as we begin to dwell in the new Jerusalem, that for the first time in the course of human history, which we've now transcended human history and moved into the realm of eternity, that God, the same God that Moses encountered on Mount Sinai, the God who dwells in an unapproachable light, will literally be dwelling in our midst. He won't be separated from us anymore. Him up in heaven, we down here on earth. Jesus' first coming was the first aspect of this, we know that he had to go to prepare a place for us. He told the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come with me, but I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come back for you, all of that. But now as we move into the realm of eternity, it's literally God tabernacling among us. Not just Jesus, but God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This also completes the promise given to Israel in Ezekiel 37, 27, and 28. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. They shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel where my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So God's promise to literally dwell with his children forever will be fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. In the meantime, praise God, we do have this Holy Spirit living in us to lead us, guide us, teach us, comfort us, all those great things that the Comforter does, the Holy Spirit. And then during the millennium, Jesus will be literally here on earth, sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning for a thousand years, we with him, but it's not until after that time 
that this is completely fulfilled in that God the Father also literally makes his dwelling among his people. Because we will be perfected at that point. We will be immortal. We will be eternal. And therefore, we will be equipped to dwell in the very presence of the living God. Verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Wipe away every tear. This is more scripture fulfilled. It is done, as we read in the opening, verse 6, or it is finished, it is done, Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. So this is earlier on in the book of Revelation. This is looking forward to eternity. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm sure all of us in this room today have had shed our percentage of tears in the course of our lifetimes here on earth. But there will be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no reason to cry. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor more pain. All the reasons for fear, and again, we talk about this fairly frequently, I think, that the enemy's number one weapon against all people, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, is fear. And we've certainly seen fear utilized as a weapon over the last couple of years, haven't we? And that's the enemy's number one weapon. And yet the Bible tells us God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, and His perfect love casts out all fear, but it's one of those things that as long as we're here on earth, it's a constant battle, it's a constant struggle to keep our eyes on God, to keep trusting in Him. Like Paul said, we fix our eyes on that which is not seen. So it's our inner eyes, our spiritual eyes, fixing our eyes on the things of God's eternal kingdom that will help us to cast out all fear. But now there will be no more reason for fear. That will all be eliminated. Isaiah 25.8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so these are, we're seeing here in chapter 21 as we move into eternity, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And again, if you want to be one of the ones who is blessed and benefits from these promises, that requires you to humble yourself before the living God, to confess your sins, to repent, to turn from a life of sin and become a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to make that clear as we look at all these awesome things that are in the future, not too distant, I don't think. Because even though the millennium is a thousand years, for you and I as immortals, it'll just be like a twinkling of an eye. So death and the need for tears will be done away with at the end of the millennium when death is cast into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20:14. And this verse I just read you from Isaiah is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and also here in Revelation 21, 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so some might say, well, gosh, if, if you know, Christ has conquered death, why do we still have to die? Because we have to put on our incorruption, 
our immortality, we need to get to that place where we have now received our incorruptible, imperishable, immortal bodies. And that is the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus, the first fruits, I believe we talked about that last week or the week before. The first resurrection, the resurrection unto eternal life, the good resurrection, the one you want to be a part of. That is when we will experience the fulfillment and the fullness. Now, our position in Christ is we are already eternal. Oftentimes we lose sight of that, don't we? We need to, we need to get that implanted in our hearts and minds that even though we're dwelling in perishable bodies, our spirits are now sealed for all eternity. The guarantee, the promise, the seal of the Holy Spirit that we will spend eternity with God in paradise. But the ultimate fulfillment of our position will be when we receive those immortal bodies. So many things about our life here on earth as believers has this duality to it. We're sanctified. We're set apart by God. But then Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's positional sanctification. In God's eyes, we are sanctified. We're set apart. Sanctified literally means to be set apart for God's holy purposes. Do we always behave in that manner? No. But that's our position. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because once you become a believer, then you you will need to spend the rest of your life working towards becoming that person that God already says you are. And we will never fully achieve it in this life. It will be achieved, it'll be accomplished when we see him face to face and we are fully transformed. But it's an ongoing process. We're justified. Justification, the, you know, the down-to-earth definition of justification, just as if I'd never sinned. And that's how God sees us. The struggle is, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't see ourselves that way, do we? And the devil loves to throw that in our faces. That's why we have to constantly be going back to God and, and calling upon Him for His grace, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness. God, help me to see myself like you see me. Not arrogantly, not pridefully, but understanding that the enemy is going to be constantly trying to throw those old sins back up in your face to heap condemnation upon you. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do you know whether your hope, the Holy Spirit is, is convicting you or the devil is harassing you? If you feel condemned, it's the devil. If you feel convicted, it's the Holy Spirit. Conviction has with it a sense of hope. Wow, I really blew it. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. You will still, in, in conviction, there is still a sense of hope. In Jesus Christ. Condemnation feels hopeless. Oh, God will never take me back now. I've blown it. It's all over. That's from the enemy. Learn to recognize the difference. That's important. Because condemnation will paralyze you. Conviction will motivate you. Okay? So, let me read that one more time. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When this corruptible, this present body has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
So our position right now in Christ, we are eternal. These bodies we're living in, however, are not. And then he goes on. For the former things have passed away. Just like we saw in verse 1 of this chapter. Now I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. So the former things have passed away. What we are now positionally in Christ, all of creation, including us, will one day be. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And again, there's that present reality in Christ, but then there's a future fulfillment that awaits us in eternity. We are the first fruits of the new creation. We are living breathing previews of coming attractions. And would that we always acted like that, right? I want to read from Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Again, we're already sons of God, daughters of God, right? John chapter 1, to as many as received him, to as many as believed on his name, he gave the right to become the sons or the children of God. But as we operate in everyday life in this world we're living in, at times, yeah, people hopefully can see that difference that in our countenance, you know, the joy of the Lord. Do you ever... Meet someone and immediately you think, I think they're a believer. You can see something, right? Yeah. But just out in the, among the masses, we pretty much just look like everybody else, right? Okay? So there's a present reality. We are the sons of God, the daughters of God. But creation is waiting. The earnest expectation of the creation, all of God's creation, because everything hinges on us. Now, again, if you get into the liberal, secular, atheistic, humanistic world, they would tell you just the opposite. They would tell you, we're the blemish on the planet. We need to be eradicated. And they're working on it. They're working on it. But it's actually just the opposite. There's only one group of entities in this universe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. It's you and me. It's human beings. All of creation is waiting for us to get our act together, but guess what? It's only going to happen when Jesus comes back. So yes, we are already children of God, sons and daughters of God, but creation is waiting for that revealing, which we won't be fully revealed until we are inhabiting our eternal, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, glorified bodies. We talked, I think, last week about how we will be beings of light, reflecting the light of God. We're not there yet, but we will be. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. So God allowed the fall of Adam and Eve in order to carry out his long-term game plan. But creation, when man was cursed because of his sin, 
all of creation. Remember, God told Adam, well, you had a pretty much a free ride there in the Garden of Eden. Now you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. And when you work the ground, it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. He was in a garden where everything was just there for the taking. Beautiful, ripe fruit off of the tree, so forth. But he took the wrong fruit. Not only was mankind cursed, all of creation was cursed. You saw that incredible volcano, undersea volcano that just erupted over by Tonga? Did you guys see that? Created tidal waves, all kinds of stuff, mass destruction. Just another little sign that we're moving closer and closer to the end of the beginning. So if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's our position in Christ. Not yet fully realized, but the most important part has been taken care of. Okay? It's no problem for God to replace these bodies. But the core issue, the main problem has been dealt with because we're created in the image of God. The real essence of who we are is our spirit. And that's the whole ballgame. Where is your spirit going when this life is over? Are you going like the thief on the cross? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Are you going to be in paradise or are you going to be in Hades? Because God can get you a new body, no problem. But you only have one shot with your eternal spirit. And that's the decision you make in this life regarding Jesus Christ. Okay. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God who allowed it to happen. He gave man the opportunity to succeed or to fail, and man failed. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs, and Jesus said that would be the sign of the last days, like a woman in labor, the pains would get more and more intense and get closer and closer together. We're seeing it before our very eyes. Together until now, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The redemption of our body will be when we get our eternal body. Even we ourselves groan. Do you ever groan within yourself? I think the older you get, the more you groan within yourself. <laughs> A whole lot of groaning going on. <laughs> but we're groaning not just for relief from our aches and pains. We're groaning to be with Jesus, right? We're groaning to move on into the realm of eternity. All right, verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, so this is one of the few times in Revelation when God himself speaks. More often, he speaks through an angel or some unidentified voice through Jesus Christ, etc. But right here, he who sat on the throne, and so this is God himself speaking. He says, behold, I make all things new. And so at this point, man will finally be what God created him to be. It's been a long haul. Immortal, sinless, and totally in love with God. Do you ever find yourself saying, Lord, I love you, but I want to love you more? I know I don't love you as much as I should, as much as I need to. 
and we never will in this life, but we will in eternity. Immortal, sinless, totally in love with God, and in honor of us, I believe, I was just having a talk with a friend of mine a couple days ago, uh, and he was bringing up that old uh, question, well, is it possible that God created other races on other planets and all that kind of stuff? I said, no, I don't really think so. For one thing, I mean, we're able to see so far into space now, it's ridiculous. We're now beginning to find out there are universes within universes. Would that surprise anybody considering who made it? And they haven't found anything yet except bogus videos of little green men. <laughs> Which, if they're real, I can tell you who and what they are. They're demonic entities is what they are. They're not people from other planets. And I can tell you that uh, God makes all things beautiful and these creatures are not beautiful. And yet they try to tell you, well, these so-called alien beings, we were at uh, Mario's having pizza Friday night celebrating my wife's birthday a few days early. On the TV screens, there was this program about aliens and stuff. And they were showing all these weird videos and pictures, and they were so gross and ugly and disgusting. And I thought, God would never make anything like that. And it's like, and they're supposed to be superior to us, right? And they haven't invented plastic surgery? Because I wouldn't go around looking like that, let me tell you that. I'm smarter than you are. Yeah, it just kind of reminds me of the intellectual elites. <laughs> Unbelievable. So in honor of us, I told my friend, you know why I think God made all this? To blow our minds. I mean, Romans chapter 1 tells us that his... He is revealed through His creation. Anybody who can look up at the sky, even without a telescope, anybody who can look at the wonders of this planet and say there's no God is obviously very deceived. Because everything logical, reasonable, any, anything and everything that makes sense tells you there is a divine creator. So He's going to make all things new. He'll recreate the whole universe as a perfect, eternal environment for His eternal, perfect people. Verse 6, And He said to me, It is done, or it is finished. It's complete. And as you know, this phrase is used several times in the Bible. We saw here in Revelation 16, 17, the last series of the tribulation judgments. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl, the bowl judgments are the final series of judgments. He poured out his bowl into the air and with a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. So there was a completion and a fulfillment. It hasn't happened yet, but in terms of the context this morning, it's past tense. But this is the completion or fulfillment of God's series of judgments on the earth during the tribulation. We also saw it on the cross with Jesus, John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What did he mean? Mission accomplished. It's finished. I did what I came to do. I came to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He came to be the sacrifice for our sins 
and it is finished. He gave up his spirit. His spirit ascended into heaven to the Father. Okay, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I make all things new. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. As you know, I'm sure Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We know that in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of this age, moving into eternity, he will destroy it all and make it all over again. Remember, he promised Noah he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. But he did not promise that he would never destroy it again. And as we've already seen, it'll be by fire this time. But it's, again, for the purpose of renewal and regeneration. It is not a negative destruction, but a positive one. Just like Jesus came and destroyed sin and death, those are things that need to be destroyed, right? And so God started it all, and he's going to finish it. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And again, of course, this goes well beyond physical thirst. It speaks of that spiritual thirst, that inner thirst for love, for relationship, to know your creator. And all that man has longed for, and man has thirsted after many things, has he not? They will all be found in God's eternal kingdom. And so many people today are so frustrated and they all have their hobby horses and their pet peeves and so forth. And what they don't realize is that everything they could ever hope for or dream for is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in the God of all creation. John 4, 10 through 14. Jesus answered the woman at the well and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. Jesus kind of sets her up there by asking her for a drink of water there at the well. The Samaritan woman. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. And so it, obviously Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level, and often he would do that and the people would misunderstand and correlate it with the things of this world, physical things. And he's trying to help her to, to go beyond that and to see into the realm of the Spirit. You know, you're there at this well drawing water for your family, for your animals and so forth, but I can give you living water springing up into eternal life. And so as we look at Revelation and the living water, the fountain of water of life, it goes beyond the physical into the realm of the spiritual. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money. Come, buy and How do you do that? How do you come and buy and eat with no money? Because God paid the price. Jesus paid the price. You see? And so many people fail to realize this, understand this, and grasp this that the gift of eternal life, the gift of the living water, it's just that, it's a gift. You can't buy it, you can't pay for it, you could never be good enough, you could never do enough good works. You who have no money, you've come to the right place. 
because I, God, give freely to all who ask. Come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. A lot of people trip up on that, don't they? There has to be, what do you mean no price? Surely I have to do something. And so many people, they try to do that. They try to, we talked about Paul saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he's not talking about that initial salvation of conversion. That's purely a work of the Holy Spirit. That's purely by grace through faith. What he's talking about is, now that you have been born again, spend the rest of your life working at becoming the person that God already says you are. And I think that's where a lot of people fall down. And a lot of people on the outside looking in say, well, if that's what a Christian is, then I don't want any part of it. Because we presume upon the grace of God. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. And therefore, we don't have to do anything. Kind of resting on our laurels, if you will. So that's the enemy's whole strategy, but he's always trying to get us into one extreme or the other. So over here, you've got the legalistic saved by works crowd i grew up in an arminianist church which teaches that you can lose your salvation and so we were constantly having to get re-saved but you only get saved once if it's a true genuine conversion it's a little dabble do you for you old folks again you know what i'm talking about brill cream a little dabble do you Okay. <laughs> so on one side you've got the the ultra legalistic group that's watching every move you make. I think I've shared this before. I spent a short time staying with some cousins of mine in a certain city uh, in a nearby state, and uh, they were attending a, this kind of a church. And so um, I would be there with my Bible singing. And people would constantly be trying to get me saved. I mean, I, I thought it was pretty obvious that I was a believer. But they were so pressured to constantly be witnessing. They were asked every week, how many people did you lead to Christ this week? And everything's predicated upon works. You see that with all the cult groups. Why are your Jehovah's Witnesses and your Mormons and your different groups so dedicated, Right? You always see them out there going door to door, riding their bicycles, whatever, because they believe they have to do it or they have no hope whatsoever of getting into heaven. Okay, it's not biblical. It's not true. But they believe it. So churches under the banner of Christ who practice this legalism produce some very bummed out, burned out, broken believers. Because, remember Jesus, he... Um, criticized the Pharisees, he ostracized them, or whatever word you want to use, because he said, you put burdens on the people that you yourselves were not willing to bear. And that's how legalism usually works. We see the same thing in Washington, D.C. or California. You must be masked, you must be vaxxed, but we can have our own little gatherings and do whatever we want. Uh, Wuhan Gersom at her wedding, same thing. You see, that's that's a dead giveaway, folks. Legalism, pharisaical attitudes and behavior, whether it's in the Christian world or the secular world, whenever they're telling you, we know more than you do, 
We're more powerful than you are, and we can do whatever we want, but you have to do this, 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 and this. It's demonic, whether it's in the church or in the government. So then over here we have the other group, you know, the Freedom in Christ group, who can sleep with whoever they want to sleep with, drink or smoke whatever they want to drink or smoke, go to church when they feel like it, and still identify as a believer. Does that sound right? No. We got these extremes. Where does God want us? And by the way, way back in the day, in the early days of Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck Smith clearly delineated the vision of Calvary Chapel, and that was to be balanced. We're not going to go to this extreme, to legalism. We're not going to go to this extreme, to liberalism. We're going to try to stay right in the middle where God wants us to be. Balanced. Okay? And so that should be our goal as well. Not legalism, not liberalism, but just following Jesus day by day. And when we fall short, we must be quick to confess our sins, to repent, and prevail upon God's grace to restore us and renew us. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, let's finish this passage here from uh, Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Now, and again, there is the spiritual connotation here. Why do we waste our time, energy, and money on things that have no eternal value or purpose? Now, obviously, we live in a material world. I'm not a material girl. Okay, why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And that's what the people of this world do, and your wages for what does not satisfy. They're totally caught up in the things of this world, making money, pursuit of happiness, and things that will never satisfy, instead of pursuing God. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. What is, hello, the Word of God. Our spiritual food. Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. We feed upon him, we feed upon his word. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Your soul. So again, we see that at the heart of the matter, it's a spiritual issue. Incline your ear and come to me, says the Lord. Here and your soul shall live. So we must incline our ear towards God, listen to him, but then come to him. It's not enough to just be a hearer of the word, as James says, but be a doer also. Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you and then the tag is the sure mercies of david and so i thought of a couple scriptures as we get ready to close here the first one first corinthians 2 9 as it is written i has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which god has prepared for those who love him so in spite of all that we see here in revelation it's just a little tiny glimpse of what awaits us. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, 
nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But just based upon the limited amount of information we have, don't you think it's the best deal in the universe? And we've only just begun to barely see what he has in store for us. And then Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. It's kind of crazy because a lot of times believers will say, well, I don't know what's going on. I asked God for this and I didn't get it. You know, I was thinking about this or that. It hasn't happened. But he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We need to focus on that. According to the power that works in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's my life verse, by the way. It's worked out pretty well. All things through Christ who strengthens me. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me read that again. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So if he's able to do that and he doesn't do it, what does that tell you? Then it's either not his timing or it's not his will. And does God want anything less than the best for you and me? No. So we need to remember that. Let's stand. Uh, before I pray, I'd like to ask for a, a show of hands. Anyone has a prayer request this morning? We'd like to lift that up to the Lord for you. See, all across the room. Father God, you see these hands. You know each person. You know exactly what's on their heart and mind this morning. We're so thankful for that, Lord, that you are omniscient. You know all. You're omnipotent. You're all-powerful. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere, so we know you're right here in our midst right now. We thank you. We praise you for that. And we lift up these prayer requests. First of all, Father, for anyone with a health issue, whether it's the person that lifted their hand or someone else that they're representing, we pray that you'd pour out your healing upon them, Lord, whether it be cancer or leukemia or heart disease or diabetes or lung disease or just a cold or the allergies from the smallest to the most significant, COVID-19, whatever it is, Father, we know that no disease can stand up against you. You're more powerful. You're the most powerful force in this universe. And so we do pray for physical healing for each and every one represented here this morning who's raised their hand, again, either for themselves or for someone else. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who heals. And we've, we've heard about it many times, personal testimonies in the scriptures. You've healed people over and over and over again. And Lord, again, we uh, are subject to your perfect will, your sovereignty, but we graciously and humbly pray for healing for all of these folks. Lord, we pray for mental and emotional issues, for anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Lord, you said that you came to set the captives free, so we ask that you would set them free from any and all mental, emotional related problems. Lord, again, you are the great physician. Nothing is too difficult for you. We pray for release and relief for those struggling in that area, Father. We pray for relationships that have been damaged or broken. Lord, we also know that you are the one who is able to bring reconciliation and redeem relationships. So we lift up marriages that are in trouble or even perhaps have been broken, but they could be put back together. Lord, for friendships and work-related relationships, school, neighborhood, wherever it may be, Lord, you call us to be at peace with all men as much as possible. 
uh, as much as we are able. So help us to be peacemakers, and we ask you to bring restoration of relationships in Jesus' name. Lord, we lift up financial issues, God, those that are struggling economically. Again, you did promise to provide for us our daily bread and so forth. Lord, give us wisdom and guidance and direction from your Holy Spirit on how we can best manage our resources, whether they be plentiful or limited. Lord, you are a provider. We acknowledge that, and we pray that you provide everyone here with that which they need. And Lord, that if someone needs a job, you provide them with a job. Lord, many have lost their jobs now because of this vaccine mandate. We pray that you'd bless them with an even better job. And Lord, that you would tear down these mandates so that people can get back to their normal everyday lives and keep their, their employment. Lord, we pray for encouragement and strengthening for everyone here today. And Lord, help us to keep focused on eternity because that's really the end game. That's what it's all about. That's when we will see the fulfillment of all your promises. We look forward to it. We ask you to receive now our final offering of praise this morning. Pray for safe travel as we go home. Pray for blessings upon the, uh, the Frito pie, whatever they're having over the day. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.